Today's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word products. Get a free audiobook of your choice at www.audible.com weeds. Welcome to the inaugural podcast of The Weeds. I'm Ezra Klein. I'm here with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff. We are all at Vox.com. And we are here basically to talk about policy. Is that right, guys? Yes. We're excited <laughs> to talk about policy. I've been waiting all week for this. Sarah seems like a reluctant podcaster. <laughs> That's a fear, right? That was I thought that was a good performance of enthusiasm. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. it it's appreciated. So we're gonna we're in general on this podcast gonna try to talk about the parts of American politics that I think we think matter the most, but that are often de-emphasized, I think is a fair way to put it, in coverage because people think they're too boring, but we don't think they're boring. We think they're fascinating. And today we're gonna uh, podcast in three parts. That's how you plan out podcasts, right? We're going to do Hillary Clinton trying to gut a major part of Obamacare. Going to talk about a sort of weird theory of American politics that I've been developing. Then we're going to talk about Donald Trump's tax plan and why it is super disappointing even for Donald Trump. But let's begin with Hillary Clinton and Obamacare. Sarah, you probably know the most about this. You want to lay out the land? I would, I would love to. So... <laughs> So we have the catalyst. Have enthusiasm again. No, I am. I'm excited. It's health <laughs> policy. So this is like my element and my friends don't really want to hear about it. So I decided to talk about it on our podcast. Um, so the Cadillac tax, it's this big part of Obamacare. I personally think it's generally a positive policy. And what it does is very unpopular. It taxes really expensive health insurance plans at a 40% rate. And basically the goal is that People won't even pay that tax. They'll just make their benefits less generous. And the reason they want to do this is basically twofold. Um, One, right now, health insurance benefits at work, they don't get taxed. They get given without any sort of um, tax like you would your normal wages. And that's pretty regressive, right, where you have people who are getting insurance at work get a much better deal than people who have jobs who don't offer coverage or unemployed. So the Cadillac tax kind of bites away at that. It kind of tries to take away the power of that exclusion. And it tries to get people to use less health care, where if your plan isn't as good, let's say you have like a $50 copay whenever you go to the doctor, you're probably going to go to the doctor less. So it makes health insurance more expensive. It pushes people to use health care less. So no wonder people hate it. So there's lately there's been this pile on against the Cadillac tax. It's kind of been brewing for like six months with some Democratic senators coming out against it. Republicans obviously hate it because they hate all of Obamacare. But then in quick succession, you had Bernie Sanders introduce a bill to repeal it. And then Hillary Clinton is um, reportedly or has said she's already going to announce that she wants to repeal it sometime next week. So the Cadillac tax, it hasn't started yet. It doesn't start till 2018. It seems like its days are numbered. And, you know, I want you guys to weigh into this. I, I think that's bad. And I think it's good politics and really bad policy. I would like to see it stick around. But it seems, you know, there's no one. The Cadillac tax doesn't have many um, allies these days, only a ton of enemies like really gunning for it right now. So the the pressure to repeal it among Democrats is coming really from from labor unions, right? That's why it's Bernie Sanders who moved first on this rather than 
like moderate Democrats folding. Right. It's it's definitely labor. It's, you know, a lot of teachers unions really care about this. And I think Democrats were able, you know, during Obamacare, they said, you know, it won't start till 2018 and look at all these other things that are happening. Let's just put in the law and we'll deal with it later. And we're kind of getting to the deal with it later part. Yeah, we're, we're hitting later. Let me say a couple things here, um, because I think this is totally fascinating and speaks really ill of Hillary Clinton. But I also don't think the Cadillac tax is going anywhere. So one, I think one case you can make on the Cadillac tax is that it hits a lot of pretty expensive healthcare plans. And we should say, in the long run, the Cadillac tax, uh, the threshold at which it begins taxing plans, grows a lot more slowly than healthcare costs typically do. So in a decade or two decades, we expect it to be hitting you know, pretty normal employer-based plans. But for now, it's pretty high-end plans, a lot of which are held by union members. The Democrats sort of push this as a tax on the rich, but it's not the case. The only people who will pay it or will will feel the effects of it are rich. Uh, but what pretty much everybody agrees on, every economist, everybody who studies healthcare, is that the current tax arrangement, the pre-Cadillac tax arrangement, is super regressive and that it encourages higher healthcare spending and, over the long run, kind of reduces wages. And what I think is fascinating here is Hillary Clinton's advisors, like I am sure, know this is pretty good policy. Uh, I am sure that when she calls up, you know, the economists that she's trusted for many years within the healthcare sort of world, they're telling her, no, 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 don't take this out. And so one kind of question I have about this is to what degree she really wants to get rid of this and is going to put political capital behind it? And to what degree this is just an easy pander to labor? Because what she kind of said so far is she wants to repeal it, but it's got to be paid for. And the Cadillac tax raises a lot of money, particularly over in the second decade of of its presence. And they're not going to find that money anywhere else. But at the same time, like, I think this speaks pretty badly of her campaign. If people remember back to sort of 2008, one of the reasons Barack Obama ended up getting a lot of establishment support is that in kind of key moments like this, when he didn't make the pander. So there was this whole fight about the gas tax that year where she wanted to do, I think it was a gas tax holiday. And yeah, because McCain. gas prices were going up. Mm-hmm. So McCain and, and Hillary were both saying there should be a like a temporary repeal or something. Right? right. And all economists said it was a terrible idea. And Obama kind of held strong on it. And, and one thing that did was it sort of made uh, clear that while he was definitely younger and less experienced as a politician and as a policymaker than Hillary Clinton was, that he in some ways was willing to tell organized uh, groups things they didn't want to hear. He was willing to stand up against public pressure in some ways, and he might actually be more responsible than his youth and, and inexperience would uh, suggest. And here I think she's got a chance to show that. She's got a chance to show that she's this policymaker who really knows these issues and is going to, you know, do what makes sense, even if it's not always the most popular course of action. And she's just, you know, folded on it right out of the gate. I mean, I think it speaks to the incredible challenge of controlling healthcare costs, because in general, you know, we all agree, yeah, let's let's make healthcare less expensive and let's spend it on other things and let's not have the highest healthcare bills in the U.S. But then you like actually have a policy like the Cadillac tax, which we really think, you know, economists Republican Democrat agree will help control costs. And then we're like, no, 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 we don't want that one. I also think it, it speaks to the fact that there's a there's an ambiguity around what that means, right? So I think mm-hmm. a normal mm-hmm. consumer, when they say they want healthcare costs to go down, what they mean is that they want the prices mm-hmm. that they pay out of pocket to be lower. When 
budget wonks talk, they're talking about how they want national health expenditures to be lower, right? And so the Cadillac tax, it reduces national health expenditures, but it does that by increasing consumer-facing costs of, of health care services. So it's not that, you know, there's, a, there's an actually like two different things are being discussed, right? And so if you make consumers pay a higher price to go see the doctor, we spend less money on doctor visits. So from a sort of macroeconomic point of view, that's bringing down healthcare spending. But from an individual's point of view, you're actually bringing up the cost of healthcare. Yeah, and that's I, why you keep having this sort of political back and forth. Yeah, I love this point. I mean, I, I call it the paradox of healthcare cost control, um, which is, as you can tell, that's an so amazing. Catchy. It really. <laughs> it, it I don't know why that hasn't caught on yet. Yeah, it's funny. I'm, I keep waiting for the bumper stickers. But the, the, the paradox is that what controlling costs will feel like to people is costs going up. That the actual like day-to-day manifestation for a typical worker of a world in which we are doing a much better job controlling healthcare costs is they're going to have higher deductibles, they're going to have higher copays, they're going to have narrower networks. They're going to feel like their healthcare got shittier because it did. And then somewhere over there, you have an economist saying, well, don't worry through some kind of mystical process that we assure you is true but can't quite show you, your wages are going to begin <laughs> going up because because national health expenditures are going to go down. And well, it, one one yeah. thing there, I think, is that like they're not going to believe it. And another, I do think there's a question of whether they should believe it. I recognize there's kind of reasonably good evidence um, from recent decades that when health expenditures go up, it does eat into wages. But we've seen uh, gains in the economy be shared pretty unequally in recent years. And so I think it's entirely possible you're going to see health expenditures go down and shareholders get bigger dividends or you know whatever it might be. And so that that side of the bargain won't be met. But even if it was to be met, it would be very hard for people to trace it back to the fact that they began paying higher deductible four years ago. Yeah. So this is so we're going to get really into the weeds now because the weeds. Yeah. (laughs) We need a sound effect whenever we do that, like when we're really going to go deep. The next problem weeds don't make noise. You mentioned there's this research that shows when health insurance costs are going up, (laughs) that wages don't go up. As fast. And everyone kind of relies on the opposite probably being true. Like, you know, oh, if they had more money for if health insurance was growing slower, wages would go up. There's actually not really research on that point. There's only one side of this that's been shown in the economics research. And huh. I kind of this is a question I get a lot writing about the Cadillac tax is like, well, what proof do you have? Like my wages will go up. And I don't think the body of research is actually that strong. And I think we might be overestimating how much of that is going to happen. So I think some of that skepticism, like what am I getting in return for lower health insurance premiums is actually pretty pretty warranted when you look at the economics well, research. Uh, well, I I, I, go for it, Matt. So so I also think, you know, when you look at where in the Democratic coalition does the opposition to this come from, right? It's coming from labor unions and a lot of it in terms of who has the muscle is coming from uh, public school teachers. And if you look at wage determination for public school teachers, it doesn't follow the kind of economic model that even would suggest that this trade-off exists, right? right? I mean, teachers unions get paid what their contracts say they should get paid, which is determined by a political process because they work for the government. Um, And so even if you completely accept that in an economy-wide sense, this kind of rebalancing effect happens, or certainly that it might happen at a 
private company, like like where we work, right? If if the bosses suddenly didn't need to pay as much to cover everyone's health insurance, they might give people raises or they might go out and hire a bunch more people. But one way or another, right, they're going to do that kind of labor spend. Um, but that's just not how school districts work, right? And so you're looking at teachers who they just have these provisions in the contract. And if you slap a 40% tax on top of it, there's just a big problem for the school district that sort of winds up redounding back against them. And that's like the the sort of sharp edge of this is that in individual cases, the kind of trade-off doesn't exist there, even if it does throughout the economy. In addition to the weeds sound effect, I really want to put it on the site sound effect for when we have good (laughs) conversations where I'm going to like come out of this and be like, we should write that up. But but something I think that is hinted at by that, Matt, I think it's just like an incredibly good point on the interest group politics of this. But I do think there's this larger question now about the Democrats and Obamacare. And I think it is, uh, you know, really well framed by what's happened in the last couple of weeks, which is basically Democrats so far are not thinking, the Democrats running for president, are not thinking or showing themselves to be thinking very creatively about how to improve Obamacare or really increase its cost controls. They're more just kind of unwinding some of the more unpopular deals in the law. So Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders both came out with prescription drug plans that sort of unwind or, you know, go back on the deal Obama made sort of with the drug companies to get their neutrality or quasi support on Obamacare by not sort of having aggressive negotiation of drug prices. That probably wouldn't pass Congress, but, you know, the idea there is not to sort of do something creative, but to just sort of do a a much more traditional long-term, you know, liberal policy idea on that, even if it's a good one. And I think in Medicare probably would be. And then you have, you know, this Cadillac tax thing. And I am really curious to see whether we get, you know, either in Congress or through this campaign, any kind of more serious democratic idea of how to improve on Obamacare. I mean, something you heard a lot from health policy wonks, particularly, you know, left-leaning ones during the passage process was Obamacare is this platform and over time it'll be built upon and it'll be improved upon and people will look at the cost control efforts in it and, you know, figure out how to scale them up and scale them down and, you know, expand the ones that really work. And so far, we're not seeing a lot of creative thinking of that kind, and we're not even really seeing interest in creative thinking of that kind. I mean, and well, you know this better, Sarah, but it's not like I call around to sort of healthcare wonks and I hear, you know, that in the think tanks, there's a lot of great work being done on how to make, you know, Obamacare into a more sort of, you know, interesting bill. So there's things here and there, but I'd say, you know, the what comes next is like the less popular, harder part. So we expanded coverage and that's like definitely true. There's more people have insurance. But now, you, and I think Massachusetts is actually a good analogy here, is where you start with coverage and then everyone, you know, the thing everyone says you have to tackle next is costs and ideally, you know, tackle prices, like try and bring down actual prices of units of healthcare. So getting your appendix out in the U.S. doesn't cost $10,000 in the U.S., whereas it costs, you know, $2,000 in Canada. And that's, you know, I think it's, you're getting less policy ideas because that's a much harder thing to wrap your arms around. Insurance, you know, it, you do have to raise a lot of revenue to do it, but you, you send out insurance cards, you, you can, you know how to do that. And, and when you see like Massachusetts, this is basically the path that they followed where they did coverage first, they came back and did cost and their cost control has been like 
medium successful. We can dive into the weeds of that if I, we want. But I think that what comes next is the harder part. Wait, I would let, me, make, let, me, I, let me make one sort of like unpopular for DC point on that, though, because I completely agree with what you're saying, Sarah, that like the idea is next comes cost control. And right now the Democrats are kind of thinking about that in terms of increasing government negotiation. This, an, uh, by the way, I've been surprised we've not heard more about the public option this campaign season so far, though maybe we still will. But I really think it's wrong. I really think mm-hmm. it's wrong that the next big thing should be cost. I think the next big thing should be quality. Um, I think it's bizarre that we talk so much about cost in healthcare. Uh, if you just show me what healthcare costs, I can't tell you anything. I can't tell you if it's a good deal or a bad deal. If healthcare goes up to 40% of GDP in 30 or 40 years, and you say to me, like, is that a disaster? Well, like, are we living 25 years longer or are we not? And there's this kind of weird thing where we've got to, it's as if the point of healthcare is to have people who are insured and have that insurance cost as little money as possible, where the point of health insurance is, and healthcare is to be healthier. I did this um, interview with Jim Webb, uh, you know, around the time he was doing his exploratory committee before he announced for president, though, honestly, I've not heard that much from that campaign since he did announce for president. But and he said that he thought one of the major uh, priorities in, in American politics should be spending money to develop Alzheimer's treatments. And I love that interview. I thought that's a really peculiar thing. I actually headlined the interview with it. And then the more I kind of sat with it, well, I don't know if Alzheimer's treatments are, you know, the right particular, you know, medical effort to focus on. I do think there's something to that. Uh, we had Dylan Matthews go out with Zoltan, who's a third party transhumanism candidate, which is all he wants to do is spend huge amounts of government money on trying to make people live forever. And it sounds kind of crazy, but it would be much more important for healthcare and what it's worth and what it means to us if we could develop effective treatments for Alzheimer's and other really serious conditions than if we bend the cost curve to so it, you know, healthcare only rises at GDP right. plus a half percentage point a year. I think we're really blinkered and weird about right. this. Well, We've I really forgotten what you, it. What you want is cost effectiveness. You want to be spending money on things that are making people Healthier. Right. And making big jumps. I mean, you want to worry about value. You want to know, like, how mm-hmm. much it costs divided by how much it's getting you. But it just we that that part of it really seems absent in the D.C. conversation. There's a certain amount of discussion of, like, can we only focus on the things we are currently purchasing that are better for people? Right. Like and that's real cost effectiveness. But there just is a weird lack of interest, as far as I can tell, in actually increasing what is the central benefit of healthcare, which is you don't die, like, or you don't die as soon, or you don't spend as much time um, uh, disabled before you die. It just, that just somehow does not drive the conversation, even though it's what drives this entire issue. It is a whole reason we talk about it, but you just get these sort of weird, you know, little plans to, to try to like bring drug prices down a bit when, you know, that's important. Like, I don't mean to dismiss that, but it just doesn't seem to me the, the unanimity, the cost should be the big thing. It just it strikes me as really weird, a really strange thing. Well, you know, I think like many things that that have been taking place in politics over the past few years, it, it reflects the sort of overwhelming level of concern about federal budget situations and the uh, near impossibility of raising tax revenue so that, you know, when you have discussions about things, right? I mean, we do have a National Institutes of Health, and they do have a budget to do research on things. Um, and there's pretty widespread agreement in Congress that that's a good thing to spend money on. 
But despite all that, we've been reducing the amount of money that we spend there because it's part of the sequester process, which is part of a you know larger budgetary negotiating process, which arose because of a kind of larger dysfunctional element within the House Republican caucus. And, you know, we have a sort of a, a big political picture scenario in which you can't do things that increase the amount of money the government is spending. And so that means that having a conversation about how to spend to achieve quality or to achieve new cures or, or things like that gets um pretty much left but, off the table. But can I can I argue that's like not it's not a dodge on your part, but it's like a it's a weird reflection of a dodge in the DC conversation. Like we are watching a Republican presidential campaign right now where Jeb Bush has a multi-trillion dollar tax cut with no explanation of how to pay for it. Marco Rubio has a multi-trillion dollar tax cut with no explanation of how to pay for it. Donald Trump has a multi-trillion dollar ex, uh, cut, tax cut which we'll talk about later with no explanation of how to pay for it. It's like that is true on the spending side. There's this kind of weirdly like responsible well we don't have the money so we can't talk about how to spend it but like uh, when you move to tax cuts it just like it just goes out the window so it's very i agree with what you're saying is that is kind of the reason but it feels really selective to me but you know one one place i would add this conversation is actually happening right now is with drug prices where there um is this hepatitis c drug that came out recently called Sivaldi. that's a great drug it cures hepatitis c in 12 weeks in like 98% of patients. And that drug's expensive. It costs, I think this is probably bad uh, marketing on the part of the people who made it. It costs $1,000 per pill. So it's very easy to criticize. <laughs> um, and $84,000. They should have made smaller pills. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or they should have just priced it at like $970. And like it kind of would have flown under the radar a little bit. Anyways, there's a very active debate about among health economists, you know, is it worth it? Like, yes, that's an expensive drug, but we're also curing people of a terrible disease. And you'll find economists who will say, you know what? I think it's worth it. It's expensive. It's going to break Medicaid budgets. But like this drug is worth it. So I think there are places where that debate is happening, but they're outside of the kind of general political chatter in Washington. Right. Well, it's one place where I was disappointed a bit by Bernie Sanders's recent prescription drugs plan, because, yeah, I mean, there's this fascinating debate where pharmaceutical companies are either uh, developing interesting new drugs or buying up or becoming the only manufacturer of existing ones and jacking up the prices like crazy. But to levels that if you look at sort of the economics, it actually nets out. It's cheaper to give the people this drug than it is to treat them, even though it seems like a really insane thing to do to jack the price up that high when it costs like nothing to make the drug. But he used to have he does have this plan. Uh, it's you know, he introduced it in last Congress to create this huge prize process where you would offer these, you know, tremendous, you know, up to you know multi-billion dollar prizes. I think he it was something like a half percentage point of GDP would go to this. And what would happen is the government would say, you know, if anybody can come up with this kind of treatment for Alzheimer's, we will give you this many billions of dollars. And then once that condition is met, the billions of dollars goes out and that drug formula is not under patent. So it can be made extremely cheaply. And like that to me is a kind of thing you would begin talking about if you were really interested in curing diseases and, and incentivizing huge medical breakthroughs. When now, if we're just leaving it to the to the drug companies, maybe you'll get some. Um, hopefully, we will. But yeah, I mean, it's going to come at a tremendous cost. Right to the point where some people can't afford it, and right. that's the you know the trade off with a drug like this hepatitis C one we have is that there's waiting lists. Medicaid is kind of prioritizing who gets it, and something. Although I have some quibbles with the Sanders plan. I don't know <laughs> if we want to get into that right now or. Well, should not. we talk about Bernie we... Sanders and the sort of bigger question of, uh, you know, 
party elites and oh that was such a smooth segue man it's really well because it's interesting (laughs) that a guy making big waves in the democratic party has spent the past 20 years in congress uh refusing to be a member of the democratic party um and also that the guy who's been making big waves in the republican party primary um does not appear to have been a republican until quite recently and as his uh opponents keep pointing out you know gave money to all kinds of um Democratic candidates. And, you know, I mean, it's just very clear that the political parties as parties, you know, don't don't want Bernie Sanders, don't want Donald Trump. And yet they're skyrocketing. Yeah. So I was giving this kind of thing a lot of thought and most was giving it thought in like a kind of self-lacerating way, because, um, you know, part of my job is to have a reasonably accurate theory of how American politics goes. And I definitely did not predict this kind of rise for Donald Trump. I did not predict this kind of, um, you know, potency in the Democratic Party for Bernie Sanders. And, you know, and and John Boehner, the way he resigned recently, which, you know, there have been rumors of him resigning in the kind of nearish future. But the idea that he walked in one morning whistling zippity doodah and like was just like, fuck it, I'm out. Like he was a man who hated his job by the end. And it, it just feels to me like, you know, and then I also thought it was fascinating that Scott Walker was such an early dropout in the Republican primary. And to me, it looks like there's something that's been kind of throwing off a lot of the models that, you know, observers like me have been using to, to look at American politics. And and my, my theory on it, and it's a theory offered with humility because I've not been right about this year so far. So no particular reason to think I would become right about it now. But I think one of the big lessons of recent years in American politics has been that the inside game matters. It often matters much more than you would think reading media coverage of American politics. Uh, The very sort of in vogue theory from political science about presidential primaries is called the party decides idea, which is basically arguing that parties have so much control over primaries that no matter who's in the polls, the best way to predict what's going to happen is to just look at early party endorsements. But if you sort of really dig into the data, like that theory is not been predicting very much lately. It's only gotten one election right since 2000. And I think that, you know, because of technological changes, because of how easy it is for candidates to reach voters directly, because of how much information there is about candidates, because of how responsive media institutions are to public interest in different candidates, right? Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders get a lot of coverage in part because it's very easy for a media organization to see that Facebook loves when you write about Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. And I just wonder if the inside game, that kind of work of building up coalitions and endorsements and courting donors and trying to get party insiders to say good things about you to reporters so you get a lot of coverage and you shape impressions of your campaign. I wonder if that inside game is just structurally becoming less important. And it's really candidates who have a very strong outside game, to some degree even in the speakership where you would not expect it, who are going to be advantaged going forward. It does seem to me that it really matters right now how good you are at ginning up voter interest in you in a way that it just didn't matter as much when voters didn't have as many opportunities to see you and didn't have as many opportunities to offer feedback to both party elites and to the media about who it was they liked. And that could potentially explain a little bit of why this has been such a weird year. So, I mean, the basic idea here would be, I I guess, that media coverage is a lot less scarce than it used to be. 
you know, you don't need to be on the network news. You don't need to be in the New York Times necessarily. You can be written up in some relatively obscure kind of publications, but stories about you can start going viral, in which case you'll get more and more attention and sort of get in front of people's eyes in a way that's more open and less locked down. But one thing I, I do wonder about that is, does that mean that sort of outsiders are going to have a bigger chance of getting in? Or does it mean that we're just going to see sort of more fads and kind of instability, right? So like Trump will rock it up, but then Carson will rock it up. And there's just a kind of different, like, positive cycle of attention, but that it doesn't amount to that much in the end. Yeah, I think that's something you've written about, Matt, before. Like, as we get closer to a general election, like, is there a point where voters, like, not get serious in a way, where they think about if they want a Democrat in the White House, you know, what are Sanders shots versus Clinton, and, like, start changing? And I, I yeah, that's one thing I think about, is, like, what is the upshot of this changing, like, in terms of, like, actually right. the types of politicians it produces at the end of the day. Right. And it's hard because I don't want to overstate it. Like, I think the nominees will be Hillary Clinton and Marco Rubio. <laughs> like, that is my current prediction. And Marco Rubio does not have the most endorsements, but he's clearly an establishment pick. I do think Hillary Clinton, you know, if there had been a more a, a broader and sort of stronger Democratic field, I think I'd be less sure about her at this point. Um, I think if Elizabeth Warren had run early... I would, you know, retrospectively give Elizabeth Warren a, a stronger shot at winning the nomination than I would have thought six or eight months ago. But, you know, I think it would still matter if this is happening sort of even on the margin, right? If if it just kind of means that you need, uh, you know, a somewhat different set of skills, if it means insiders are relatively less advantaged over outsiders, uh, over candidates with outsider skills, you know, that, that kind of matters in the long run. I think that it's important to sort of be honest that like this would be sort of trend spotting and trying to see that maybe a change has been happening for longer than we think because um, it only seems so nuts this year because Trump is a really unusual candidate to be taking so much advantage of it. But it is striking. I mean, it is genuinely striking to me. Like this was supposed to be the year the Republican Party had its strongest field in a generation. And in the last poll I looked at, uh, you had 52% of the vote going to Trump, Carson, or Fiorina. So a majority of Republican primary voters as of mid to late September were saying that they preferred the three candidates who had never held elected office. Like that is a, a tremendous indictment of the Republican Party's relationship with its own base and how well its base believes that its you know, elected officials are fulfilling their needs. I mean, I actually do think this is a strong Republican field, but it is... That is a terrible, terrible, I think, indictment. The other big trend that we've been seeing in American politics, though, that sort of point in the opposite direction is like more and more influence of bigger and bigger sums of money coming in through the kind of super PAC channel. And what I do think is really interesting is that we've seen that changes in the media have at least seemed to have fully counteracted that, right? That Jeb Bush got a sum of money that is just totally mind-blowing, particularly given that he was up against other quality candidates. It's not like he was like the only reasonable person to donate to. And it it's really not helping him, right? Like, almost at all. Um, Scott Walker, you know, had a ton of money in his super PAC, but it didn't help him. Uh, Rick Perry was not able to go anywhere. Um, Bernie Sanders is obviously, uh, like, famously not part of this huge dollar system. And it doesn't 
it doesn't matter that much because at least so far in the campaign, you can get so much through, you know, earned media, through people writing stories about you and, and sharing them on Facebook, that this whole question of, you know, how many television ads you can buy is just not been a factor at all in the campaigns thus far. And, you know, there may come a point where that changes, right? And suddenly the ability to buy 15, 30 second TV spots is like a huge deal. And then we're going to see a lot of things flip. But, you know, it's possible that that won't happen, that there's just enough free media out there that people who are compelling can really break through and people who are well financed just fail if people don't find them charismatic. Yeah. I if you think, yeah, yeah. Go for oh, it. Go, no, you go ahead. I continue to think that people just worry about the wrong thing with money in politics. I, I think that everything in American politics, like the the continuous kind of mistake we make about it, is to way over focus on the presidency and presidential elections, and just way under focus on Congress, on state legislatures, on even local elections. And I think it's no different in money. Although to some degree, there's a positive aspect to this. I think that. Rich donors love to be important people who get sucked up to by presidential candidates because it's really fun. Like, you know, these people, they are, you know, celebrities to you. One of them might be president. They're coming to your house or telling you how great you are. They are answering your questions about policies. Maybe they are accepting your terrible advice about how to be in politics. Like the funniest thing about running for president right now is all the terrible advice people get from their super PAC donors to just do idiotic things. And then when their campaign doesn't work, the super PAC donors like blab their terrible advice to Politico. There's a Scott Walker. Example, yeah, Matt, right? you want to jump in with the Scott Walker example? You right. So, so one of Scott Walker's donors <laughs> told the New York Times that he had tried to feed him this amazing quip where he was going to say that Donald Trump had dinner at 21 in Manhattan with Oliver Stone. <laughs> right. So you can tell that Trump's not a real conservative. And I don't know. I mean, A, who would care? But B, like... <laughs> Who wouldn't have dinner with Oliver Stone, right? I mean, it's an interesting, famous movie maker. Like, it just shows, you know, people like to talk to famous people. Also, Dom- under- Donald Trump had Hillary Clinton at his wedding, and, like, it didn't hurt him at all, right? <laughs> but, like, the Oliver Stone connection is really going to devastate him in the Republican primary. But if if these um, guys, and they are, I think, at the super PAC level, it seems mostly guys, like, if they were pumping this money into state legislatures, if they were pumping this money into congressional races, those are really low-information zones. And you can really change people's minds because you just don't know anything about these people. But at the presidential level, you already know so much. And most voters at that level vote their party with such reliability that you can't convince them of anything. They, they just they already know by the end of an election what they think of Mitt Romney or what they think of Barack Obama or what they think of Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders. And so it just seems to me there is this tremendous waste of money going on because people just they they enjoy being involved in presidential politics and do not enjoy being involved or thinking about or getting a lot of information about congressional politics. But I think it has like in the long run, like a pretty bad effect on the system. Uh, I think it's a systemic problem in attention. And I think it leads us to continuously be disappointed in our presidents because we just want them to enact more change and rescue the system in ways they just don't have the power to do. Right. And if you think if you're like a super mega rich billionaire, the place where you can actually have a ton of influence is really state legislatures. Like there's so much gridlock here. Like Congress barely passes anything. And then you look at state legislatures and they're like passing dozens of abortion restrictions. They're changing the way Obamacare works. Those are just areas 
I follow carefully. So I totally agree that if that's not even even going down like a level from Congress, that there's this missed opportunity. If I if I was a mega billionaire, which I am not from working at Vox.com, but hope one day to be. Yeah. I would be tossing all my money into state legislatures. But then I was kind of thinking about, you know, your theory, Ezra, on what's changing in parties. And like I said, I expect the same kind of candidates to emerge from this process. But I was wondering if it might work differently at a local level in that if if you saw in you know state legislatures, if outsiders actually have a better shot there, if you could be like a really viral candidate or something like that, you know, if you could, if it could create an entryway, if there's less party cohesion at a lower level, that if you're the Bernie Sanders of some like race in New York, that you might actually have a shot of really becoming a state legislature, becoming a member of Congress. I don't, I haven't thought about it a ton. This might circle back to our put it on the site sound if we ever come up with it. <laughs> but how this would play out in like these less recognized races. Maybe it could be a put it on the site jingle. We might need to research it. Yeah, I, I, I don't really know what the answer to that would be at all. I mean, on the one hand, definitely the, the sort of Tea Party wave in 2010 had that quality where you had a lot of outsider candidates win Republican primaries and, and then get elected to Congress. Right. On the other, like by the sort of argument I'm making, those are less information dense uh, elections. And as such, like you would expect that sort of party endorsements and local elites and kind of the other ways people learn something about an election where they maybe feel like they should vote to be a good citizen, but really don't know much about it. You'd expect that that would be sort of heavily dependent on the information that is coming to you through trusted mediating institutions. But yeah, I mean, uh, that may be completely wrong. Right. I guess I was thinking because there's so information low (laughs) that if you just like put in a little bit of information, you could kind of vault over that. Or if you think of like Eric Cantor's loss seems to be a case that, you know, that's a possibility. But but, you know, I mean, it's just it's another transition that it's it's too good to give up. I mean, what if you were a really rich mega billionaire and you wanted to get involved in politics and you also, say, had experience as a reality television host? I don't, what, what, what would one do, Matt? I think you'd have to find out after this word from our sponsor. Boom. You see how I did that? It's sort of an alley-oop. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Boom. Today's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible is offering The Weeds listeners a free audiobook of your choice, plus a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash weeds, choose from over 180,000 audio programs, and start listening. It's that easy. Personally, uh, my most recent Audible favorite has been Andrew Roberts' recent biography, Napoleon, A Life. It's a comprehensive, modern, up-to-date, and reasonably concise overview of the life and times of one of history's most fascinating figures. He's someone who's best known for his big-picture military strategy, but he turns out, if you listen to the book, to have deeply appreciated the importance of delving into the policy details. If you want to listen to that book, or many others, Audible has it. Go to audible.com slash weeds. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash weeds and get started today. Donald Trump got in the Republican race. And one of the things he's sort of had going for him the whole time is that he's so rich that, you know, he doesn't need to bother to raise money at all. Um, and that's something he talks about all the time. You know, he he kind of like attacks the other guys as, as bought and paid for. And for uh, weeks or months of his rise to prominence, this had gotten a lot of people excited about the idea that he was going to actually break with the kind of orthodox Republican thinking on taxes. Um, 
And he got into a feud with the Club for Growth, which is like the big sort of donor enforcement arm that says there have to be tax cuts for the rich in every kind of Republican platform. Um, and I at least was getting really sort of excited about Donald Trump on this tax ground that he was going to uh, shake things up in American politics in more than just a kind of entertaining uh, on a debate stage way. Um, but this week, he finally released his actual tax plan, and it's incredibly boring. It's, <laughs> it's not literally identical to Jeb Bush's tax plan, but it's completely the same in structure. He just takes the tax brackets that exist right now. He eliminates them so there's fewer brackets. He cuts the rates on all of them. He cuts the top rate a lot. He cuts capital gains taxes. Um, and so you wind up with a system in which the government loses a lot of revenue, in which a huge share of the revenue loss accrues to the richest families. And it's like something that could have been kicked up by the most sort of generic Republican talking with the most generic set of donors. And it, it really makes me feel like a it, it makes me sad. <laughs> How Donald Trump made Matt Iglesias sad. I think the other thing about that, and, and I think what was why I thought Trump might actually be going in a different direction, is that the current Republican Party consensus is a really politically bad idea. Like even if you poll Republicans and you say, do you support tax cuts for the rich? They don't. Like most Republicans do not want to cut taxes on rich people because like they are not even. rich. It's about even. But if you if you put tax cuts for the rich against any kind of spending cut, more or less, if you say, do you want to cut Social Security benefits or cut or, or increase taxes on the rich? It is overwhelmingly to increase taxes on the rich. So, I mean, there's just been for a long time in polling um, evidence that there is a substantial portion of the Republican Party and potentially a substantial portion of the Democratic Party that would flock to a kind of socially conservative, economically populist candidate. But that because of the sort of interest group coalitions on both sides, that particular part of the electorate, which is served by political parties in Europe where they have multi-party systems, that particular part of the electorate just wasn't finding uh, a, a major party candidate to represent them. And Trump seemed like he could potentially be that candidate and then just decided not to be for reasons I don't for reasons I don't fully understand. And, and in part, I feel like I can't fully understand because we don't know who is advising him or why. Right. Like, what's your thinking, Matt? And like, what's in your sadness of what's going on and how you end up at a tax plan like this? Because I'm thinking about like, who is I don't I don't think Donald Trump came up with this on his own, but like what type of advice do we think he's getting that leads to like this type of plan? The smartest, classiest advice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just the best. Most golden advice. <laughs> the best, classiest advice. No, I feel like it goes back to this is kind of a cliche about about politics. And, you know, you think about like the Robert Redford movie, the, the candidate where he's running. And I think that Trump started to believe that he could actually win. And so he decided to think about, well, is picking a huge fight with the Club for Growth and other groups that have held a veto over the Republican nomination really something that I want to do? Or do I want to stick to my kind of signature issue of anti-immigration stuff and my love of myself and start trying to shave the edges off, right? And if it was almost anyone other than Donald Trump, you would almost kind of take this for granted, right? Outsider candidate who seemed like a super long shot running on a single issue obsession, catches fire unexpectedly, starts to rocket up in the polls, and then starts cutting deals. Like we remember when when Howard Dean, right, rose from total obscurity to the top of the polls by 
being the guy who was against the Iraq war, unlike all other issues, he started trying to, you know, just conform himself to what it would take to win, right? He he changed his position on guns, all, all kinds of stuff like that. So it's a it's like a little bit of a banal type thing, but it had seemed like Trump was like so manic and so weird and so crazy and so, um, you know, didn't really sort of didn't care if he won or lost because he wasn't really a politician. Um, but I feel like he just he looked at that lead he had been maintaining in the polls and was like, you know what? Let's just put this tax thing to rest. And he got the positive tweet from Stephen Moore. In in, in some way, though, I got to be honest, like, I think that almost gives him I, I think it. And, and I should say, like, I really don't know here. I don't know what the process was. It's very hard to figure out what's going on inside Donald Trump's political operation and even harder to understand what is going on inside his policy All operation to the hair. extent that he has one, right? Yeah, it's, it's hair, it's bluster, but it's really <laughs> him. Like, we really don't know in very great detail, like, what his process is. And, you know, your your argument there, your frame, Matt, is that Trump sat down and made a strategic decision to go with one kind of tax plan yeah, over Trump another. Trump sold out. But and I think what? Trump may have no fucking idea what kind of tax plan he ended up getting. Like, I don't know how he picked the people who wrote it. And I'm not sure that even when he went out and began selling it, because like, he made a bunch of misstatements about it at the beginning. Like, I'm not sure when he went out to sell it that he actually even knew what he had exactly. Because he's got this thing where he wipes out tax liability for a lot of people at the bottom end. And I just, I am not sure that he even means to have the plan he has so much as that, you know, somebody, he had to get advice from somebody because, like, as Sarah says, he wasn't sitting up late with a calculator and a pencil behind his ear. Well, and, yeah, sorry, go on. One of the bizarre things about this is it's been rolled out as this, like, very populist plan and actually got a lot of... Matt wrote this article that I was reading in preparation for our discussion where everyone's like, oh, look at Donald Trump's yeah, this populist a black, plan. Black day he's for like, the media. Yeah, so it's not even like, I mean, in a way he's like, capitulating to what Republicans want, but he's like also doing this thing where he's selling it as not the thing Republicans want. Like there's headlines that say that this tax plan um, raises taxes on the rich, which is not true. And people, oh, and then Chuck Todd saying that, um, oh, Obama would, this is the type of plan Obama would pass. Like, so black eye for the media, but also like, that's, it's weird. You're trying to appease Republican donors, but you're also selling things that are not true in it. Yeah, but I mean, it's not, I mean, again, if it's not Donald Trump, right, when Jeb Bush comes out and he says to Chris Wallace on Fox News, oh, this is primarily a tax cut for the middle class, uh, when that's not true, right? No one is confused as to why he's saying that, right? He's saying that because a middle class tax cut would be more popular than his actual tax cut. Uh, but he's written this tax cut that's very tilted to wealthy people because that's what um, hardcore conservatives um, think we should do in the country. And so, you know, Trump, I, I guess I'm willing to give him a, a little bit more credit as an operator. I mean, the guy runs a multi-billion dollar business empire. He presumably knows tax attorneys, accountants, you know, specialists in this field <laughs> who can help him work through these kind of issues. Um, you know, if you People looked at so his- People so mean. If you looked at his asset <laughs> disclosure, right, he must have a very complicated personal tax situation uh, that he is sitting down with, you know, really well informed people about. Um, and, you know, I think I think he like he wants to be president. 
you get that glitter in your eye. You start thinking about, I mean, the president has a, even a way better plane than Donald Trump does. I mean, it's a, I'm it's not a, sure Donald Trump believes that, like literally that thing, though, that anybody has a better plane than yeah. he does. Well, and he but could let make me, Air Force One so much you, classier. But let me push you on one piece of that, Matt, because right. I, I do think this goes to the psychology of Donald Trump in an interesting way. Up until this moment, it has not appeared to be the case. And it, it's not just not appeared to be the case in Donald Trump's head, but like literally in reality, that the way to become president, even the way to win the Republican nomination is by capitulating to Republican interest groups. I mean, Donald Trump has picked fight after fight after fight. He didn't need to pick. He's picked fights with Fox News, with the Club for Growth. He likes to bully Rand Paul in public in ways that are pretty weird. He he really he picked a fight with John McCain. He, I mean, well, I guess he answered a fight with John McCain, but he picked a fight with war heroes in the Republican defense establishment. He said he didn't want to cut entitlements. Like Donald Trump's theory of the case uh, up until now seemed to be that Republicans hate the Republican Party. And every time Donald Trump showed that he could stand up to a, you know, a, a part of the Republican establishment, he would be rewarded for it. And up in, and he has been in general. So I guess one reason that that story of Trump doesn't feel intuitively right to me is that it it doesn't track the way he's been acting so far. And it doesn't track, I think, the lessons that he would probably have drawn from what he's seen. Because, I mean, so far, every time he has gone to war with, you know, the Republican establishment, he's been rewarded for it. So it just seems weird that he would sit down and write his tax plan and decide, like, oh, I actually do need Stephen Moore's endorsement. Well, you know, he spent a lot of time attacking Republican Party politicians by name because they have become very unpopular sort of with Republicans as a whole. But that's actually something Club for Growth has always done, right? They've been a sort of interesting anti-party factional group, right? They are the guys who mount primary challenges to incumbent legislators, right? And so they are very much in touch with the kind of general Trumpian, like, we're the real conservatives, let's throw the bums out kind of sentiment. So I think in a weird way, that fight that he was getting into with them was a like a strange fight for Trump to be in. And it makes a certain amount of sense for him to try to reconcile himself with them. That said... It is definitely true that Donald Trump's motives and the inner workings of his mind are a little bit obscure to me. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's, I think, a pretty obvious almost understatement. Uh, right. He. He most of what he does, he does seem to be making up as he goes along. And so sitting down to write policy plans is obviously not second nature to him. And, and we don't really know how it comes together. Right. And to be fair, you see some of this happening on the Democratic side with, you know, to circle back to Sanders and his ideas on prescription drugs, like this idea of like a big prize um, for making a great drug that doesn't show that doesn't show up in his um Pre- uh, proposal as a presidential candidate. That's one of his congressional proposals. I think you guys are a, might have awarded one of your favorite idea in health cares to recently. But then you get into presidential politics and like this kind of different off the wall idea. It looks his plan and Hillary's plans on drugs look quite similar. There's none of those kind of bigger outside the lane ideas showing up there. Oh, man, I'm going to hit my in the weeds uh, sound <laughs> effect again. Uh, so that everything you say that was totally right. The, the, I think the, I don't know, defense may not be the right word here, but I think the, uh, 
there's a weird way in which Sanders' different prescription drug plans are mutually exclusive of each other. The he His prize plan goes way further than I would if I were doing a prize plan. He basically gets rid of the patent system entirely. Um, so his prescription drug plan, basically, if you put his prize plan into it, like the rest of it would be completely unnecessary because we would not have like any kind of prescription drug market that we recognize. Uh, so it's very possible he could just end up releasing both. And, you know, I mean, it's hard to say with these things, the intimation, you know, from talking to people around him a little bit, like, you know, it doesn't seem ruled out. Uh, so I, I don't want to say for sure that, like, that won't come out. But I do think something you say there is, is completely right. We have not seen really ambitious policy from Sanders yet. We know that he supports single payer. We know he supports That's a carbon pretty tax. ambitious policy. <laughs> no, no, no. But sorry, to be super clear, like, he has not released a single payer plan as a presidential campaign proposal yet. He's not released a major, to my knowledge, um, no. you know, super specific climate plan. We can look back in his record as a legislator and see it. And he's been clear he supports it. But so far, he's released policy papers, and those tended have tended to be smaller. His specific policies have tended to be smaller than the policies he talks about when he speaks more generally about what he does and doesn't believe in. Now we've got to say more stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Did I just shock you all into silence? Without... You're too far in the weeds. We can't even find you. Oh, man. <laughs> No, look, I think I think the bottom line is that presidential campaigns are sort of exciting moments in personalities battling with one another. But the incentive structure tends to actually be for people to uh, whittle down some of the edges of their thinking around different things. And, and that's a common thread between, you know, Sanders dropping one of these prescription drug things, Hillary kind of just kind of giving in to what people want on um, on the Cadillac tax, even Trump on his tax plan, right? It does not, it encourages you to try to stand out as a persona, but not really as someone who um, has ideas. Whereas when Sanders was a legislator, right, the whole thing was, you know, how do you get attention as this kind of like backbench, ideologically marginal member of Congress? And it's kind of by taking some of these big swings, you know, gets gets a name out for yourself. But once you become like a well-known center of national attention, you start worrying about, you know, who am I going to make angry? That seems completely right to me. Um, Sarah, unless you've got a closing comment. No, I'm just so excited about our new podcast. God, it's great. We will continue doing a podcast called In the Weeds, which you can tune into weekly. But also you can find our work at Vox.com, where it'll be more polished and probably more correct. <laughs> One thing we will put up at Vox.com, uh, taking a note from Timothy Ferris's podcast, which I enjoy a lot, is we will put up kind of a show notes that you know links to things we've talked about gives a kind of like the reference material that we've gone at here so if you want to get deeper get more in the weeds on some of the topics we've we've talked about here we will provide resources to go forward So the guy in the control room has just asked us to have a more kind of meta closing conversation about whether our uh, In the Weeds podcast was sufficiently weedy uh, for our taste. We started really deep in the weeds. Sorry, we did. Yeah. We kind of ended. up a little bit. Yeah. 
like Donald Trump, I think we sold out at the end a little. <laughs> um, just speculating on politicians' motives and <laughs> saying a lot of stuff we have no actual information about. Yeah. But I think That's it's part point. of what makes the podcast format so delightful is unlike when you're doing written journalism, you have no ability to call anyone who knows what they're talking about or do any research. Right? I would say my big criticism of our podcast today, I kind of like this that every, maybe at the end of every podcast, we'll have a sort of like a, like a Marxist self-criticism session. Um, but I think that we were too connected to news topics. I, I think that the true in the weeds podcast should just be like, is single payer a good idea? Or right. like, should like we, we need have to get some prizes? white papers up in here and just like, Go to town on them. Yeah, just like completely like, fuck it. Like, is is America's copyright system just garbage? Or like, do we need that kind of protection for intellectual property? Like, this stuff politicians give us news pegs for is terrible. So that's coming next week on The Weeds. Discussions that are not in any way relevant <laughs> to your <laughs> lives or ours. <laughs> okay.